Hey friends, before we get this episode started, I want to let you know that today is the first day of our Least Important Things monthly newsletter. I'm calling it the Least Important Things Monthly. It's going to be a conversation about the topics of Least Important Things, also an opportunity to read more, to to learn more, and hopefully collaborate more in the future. I'm hoping to have your thoughts on the newsletter uh, and get engaged and continue this dialogue as we explore, tell stories about the most important of the least important things in our lives. You can subscribe if you haven't yet by going to our website, www.leastimportantthings.com. And there's a big button that says subscribe to our newsletter, and you will be already and set to go for next month's newsletter. This episode is in honor of the spooky season and a little bit of indulgence for me, a little bit of a nerding out episode for me. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you learn something new about the history of horror movies. But that's enough of me. Until you get some more of me, I'm with the episode. In a cinematic climate where IP franchises reign and conglomerates fight for every dollar from the shrinking theater industry and complex streaming platforms, one movie studio has been pumping out profitable hit after hit, both in the box office and in critical reviews. Blumhouse. The privately owned movie studio by Jason Blum started in 2000, but got its big break with 2007's Paranormal Activity, a found footage film that only cost $15,000 to make and earned almost $200 million worldwide. Since then, the studio has become a household name in giving directors creative freedom to produce original works, primarily in the horror genre. Blumhouse notable titles include The Purge series, The Insidious series, The Sinister series, Split in Glass, Ouija, and Megan. The studio has produced Oscar-worthy features like Whiplash, The Black Klansman, Get Out, and Us. And in the past couple of years, they've adapted and rebooted notable titles like Five Nights at Freddy's, Amityville, Black Christmas, The Craft, Firestarter, The Invisible Man, Halloween, and the new Exorcist film. On Blumhouse's slate is another Spawn movie starring Jamie Foxx and a Wolfman reboot starring Ryan Gosling. Here's the founder, Jason Blum, talking to IMDb about the history of the production company. Uh, A Blumhouse film is uh, first and foremost entertaining, scary, hopefully original. We try and make movies that people, you know, haven't seen before. And sometimes, on top of all that, we try and make them about something in society or put a theme of some kind into them, although they don't all have that. Some of them are just fun and scary. Just remember all the good The Purge does, okay? It's all that matters. The Purge was the first movie I made that gave me the confidence that it felt I could be successful in the movie business. It was the fourth successful movie that we did. I did Paranormal Activity, then Insidious, then Sinister, and then The Purge. Even after the three movies, People were still like, oh, I got lucky or this or that. And, and the purge was the turning point for Blumhouse. It was really when the industry recognized we had kind of a different approach to making movies that was working. For as much fanfare that Blumhouse receives from moviegoers and fanatics alike, their model isn't new. In fact, the horror genre has always been a breeding ground for fast, affordable and entertaining filmmaking. That strategy was paved by a small British production company that churned iconic and profitable hit after hit. That company was called Hammer Pictures, 
more commonly known as Hammer Horror. You're listening to a podcast called Least Important Things. I'm your host, Luke Ferris. From 1935 to 1977, the small British production company produced 166 films. Hammer's Rise was during a period when cinema was transitioning from the post-war noir and fantastical musical era to the grittier auteur filmmaking of the 1970s. Hammer Horror filled this gap by moving cinema to a darker, raw, and aggressive space in the guise of classical period storytelling. I first started investigating Hammer by tracing the lineage of two actors that shaped my childhood, and probably yours. First was Peter Cushing, who most famously played the sinister and confident Governor Tarkin in 1977's Star Wars. Governor Tarkin! I should have expected to find you holding Vader's leash. I recognized your foul stench when I was brought on board. Charming to the last. His counterpart and collaborator during the Hammer days was Christopher Lee, who played another villain in the Star Wars universe, Count Dooku. He also portrayed the power-hungry and vengeful wizard Saruman in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So the ring of power has been found. All these long years, it was in the Shah. Under my very nose. And yet you did not have the wit to see it. Your love of the halfling's leaf has clearly slowed your mind. But before they were icons for these fantasy and sci-fi franchises, they dominated genre cinema for decades, portraying many characters, but most prominently, Lee as Count Dracula and Cushing as Dr. Van Helsing. This is not Lucy, the sister you loved. It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. Mr. Harker, I'm glad that you've arrived safely. Count Dracula. I am Dracula, and I welcome you to my house. I must apologize for not being here to greet you personally, but I trust that you have found everything you needed. Thank you, sir. It was most thoughtful. It was the least that I could do after such a journey. Within 15 years, from 1958 to 1973, Hammer produced 88 pictures, with Lee and Cushing starring in a combined 43 of the films and seven as co-leads. In total, they'd worked together in 22 films together over their illustrious careers. The first decades of Hammer in the post-war era were mainly spent on low-budget radio adaptations. It wasn't until 1957's The Curse of Frankenstein that a snowball effect shift happened for the studio. Ben Mankiewicz explains this for his intro for the film for Turner Classic Movies. Cushing plays Baron Frankenstein, the man behind the monster. The film follows the familiar storyline about the inventor who courts madness while trying to achieve his obsession of bringing the dead back to life. But there are big differences between this film and the Frankenstein movies made by Universal in the 1930s and 40s. First, these are shot in color. 
And second, the filmmakers take advantage of that as much as possible, especially when it comes to the use of blood and severed body parts. You know, your arms, your eyes. Christopher Lee's monster makeup had to convey a sense of sewed-together gruesomeness without seeming to copy Universal's then-copyrighted Frankenstein design, and I think you'll agree the filmmakers nailed it. One review referred to the gore in The Curse of Frankenstein as, quote, road accident cinema, which sounds like a compliment to me, but may not have been. Others explicitly credited Hammer with rejuvenating the monster film genre. The result was a huge worldwide success, especially with teenagers. From 1957, also with Hazel Court, Robert Urquhart, and Valerie Gaunt. The Curse of Frankenstein. This is Frankenstein, who revolted against nature, who experimented with the devil and was forever cursed. His unwilling collaborator... The Curse of Frankenstein made 70 times its production costs. Seven million dollars. Hammer Horror was off to the races. Nestled in an English countryside manor called Bray Film Studios, Hammer Horror cheaply started producing scores of gothic horror movies. Here's one of the former staff members describing the cheap and homey feel of Bray Studios and the 1994 documentary Flesh and Blood, The Heritage of Hammer Horror narrated by Lee and Cushing themselves. Everybody who worked for Hammer loved what they were doing. We didn't have enormous budgets. We worked very long hours in very cramped facilities. It was only a big old house. And we did remarkable things. If you look at the old films, the old horror films that were made in that old house, it's quite remarkable. You'd think we'd shot in at MGM or Pinewood. A year after the success of The Curse of Frankenstein, Hammer released Dracula in 1958 also known as the horror of Dracula. And it cemented Lee as Dracula and Cushing as Van Helsing in pop culture lore. This is the story of Dracula, a creature who destroys all whom he touches. Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. And the film cemented Lee as Dracula and Cushing as Van Helsing in pop culture lore. Over the next 20 years, Hammer established itself as the leading studio in exploitation cinema, especially thanks to their popular release in the United States. I think Hammer films were exploitation films. I mean, exploitation films basically are are films that are designed to exploit via advertising a particular sensational aspect. And, and the, if you ever look at the British ads for Hammer films, they are incredibly tasteless. I mean, they really make the pictures look like AIP pictures from the 50s, whereas the American ads tend to be models of restraint, actually, in comparison. That was filmmaker Joe Dante, who was heavily influenced by the Hammer films as a kid. Dante would go on to make films like The Gremlins, Gremlins 2, The Howling, Piranha, The Burbs, Small Soldiers, Inner Space, and many more. And he's not the only American director influenced by Hammer Horror. Here's the legendary Martin Scorsese. 11 or 12 years old and into into my teenage, uh, went with groups of friends to go see certain films. If we saw the the, uh, logo of Hammer Films, we knew that it was a very special picture. We knew it was a certain kind of film. Alongside the Dracula films, Hammer produced hits like 
The Hound of the Baskervilles and the Mummy in 1959, The Gorgon in 1964, and She in 1965. And while Hammer wasn't as overtly progressive or self-aware as today's prestige horror, they did push the limits of filmmaking and messages, including making a rare film portraying a lesbian love story called The Vampire Lovers that is still cherished today. But as Hammer entered the 1970s, they failed to keep up with evolving tastes and the evolution of their own genre. Even before the film was finished, an ill-fated sequel began on the same sets. We start with a title. We think to ourselves, what's a good title? And we think, um, to love a vampire. And so then we make a poster. And with this poster, I go around and see these distributors and say to them, how would you like to have a picture called To Love a Vampire? And they say, oh, wonderful, when can I have it? So I say, well, perhaps we can deliver it in about six months' time. And I say, you want to see a script or do you want to know who's in it? And they say, no, don't bother about that. This is a Hammer film and we know it'll be all right. During the 60s, there were a lot of imitators of Hammer. Uh, Amicus pictures were looked virtually the same, had identical casts and people. And I think the studio started to lose its identity a little bit. Eventually, Hammer would limp along into obscurity with studios like New Line Cinema and the 1980s and 1990s taking its place, ushering in a new era of the genre. But like the devilish villains they showcased, the memories and cult following of Hammer could never really die. Fan periodicals like Little Shop of Horrors, published by Richard Clemenson, savor the films like fine old wines. Top professionals tip their hats to Bray. Gremlins Patton is climax of the end of Hammer's original Dracula. Director Joe Dante cast Christopher Lee himself in Gremlins 2. He said, but you have to remember, Christopher, that I and all my peers and all my colleagues, and there's a great many of them, Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, John Landis, Steven Spielberg, Joe Dante, and many, many others that don't come to mind at the moment. He said, we were brought up on your films when we were teenagers and young men. In 2007, the Hammer film rights and brand name were purchased and produced eight films in 11 years, most notably the American adaptation of Let Me In and The Woman in Black, starring Daniel Radcliffe in his first major role after the Harry Potter franchise. Hammer was once again reacquired in 2021, and it's releasing its first new picture in four years. The film is an adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde like the indomitable count, will hammer in their reputation once again entice filmgoers to flock and shock. Two steps ahead, that is the secret. Nina Jekyll is excellence incarnate. She demands the same from others. But we're looking for someone who could help about the house. Do you like my chessboard? Do you play? Sorry, that's at me. There are cameras in almost every room. Nina has been resistant to coexisting with staff until you. I think studios like Blumhouse and Hammer that punch above their weight and do better with less can give us all hope as consumers that there are still original ideas out there. 
in my mind, Hammer's a predecessor of a trend that's already happening in Hollywood, where the most innovative films are the ones supported by artist first studios. Obviously, we're talking about Blumhouse, but another studio called A24 is a great example of an artist first studio. So, are future moviegoers gonna buy tickets or stream because of a studio name versus who's on the billing? And can there be more studios like Blumhouse that provide creative autonomy and original storytelling to artists? The horror genre has been and probably will always be at the intersection of original storytelling and consumer appeal. And I believe horror will continue to fight against the system that rewards safety and predictability. Maybe these two forces, the push and the pull, are destined to do this, to battle with each other forever. Just like Dracula and Van Helsing, who eternally will be consecrated foes, endearing film lovers generation after generation. Least Important Things is a podcast about the most important of the least important things in our lives. It's hosted by me, Luke Ferris, and produced by Jay Ferris, logo and brand designed by Curtis Felton. Thanks for listening to this special spooky Halloween-themed episode. If you want to learn more about scary movies, I did an episode last year about the horror movie genre and how it's really helping and lifting up auteur creators to make the most innovative films happening right now. You can search that in your podcast feed. Just search Least Important Things, Scary Movies, or just scroll down our feed and look for Scary Movies. It's a great conversation that ties in with the episode today. If you want to get involved in the show, visit our website, leastimportantthings.com. You can follow me on social media at Luke H. Ferris. You can follow Least Important Things on TikTok at Least Important Things. And you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter, You can do that by going to our website. There's a subscribe button that you can click on there. You can also leave a voicemail if you want to share about this episode or ideas for future episodes or just want to give me a shout. And until next time, I'll talk to you soon. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.